Well, good morning. So it's a joy to be with you all again this morning to be able to sing praises, to fellowship, to enjoy the encouragement that comes from being with the body of Christ. And so it is good to see you this morning. As we get started, I have a question. It's a, it's a personal question. It's a little bit pressing and maybe a little uncomfortable. But why did you come here this morning? Why did you sing this morning? Why are you praising the Lord? If you don't have a motivation behind being here this morning, if you don't have a clear reason for why you are here this morning, why you are singing, as wonderful as the songs were, as enjoyable as the music may be to listen to, then there's really little difference than attending a concert and being entertained. There's really very little difference between the mindless meditation of Buddhism or the emptying of your mind of New Age mysticism. You see, mindless worship, mindless coming together is false worship. And likewise, if you perhaps do have a reason for worship, but it's the wrong reason, maybe it's because you want to feel good, you want to be entertained, you've made it about yourself, and that likewise is also false. Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament chose to worship God in their own way for their own reasons, and they paid for it with their lives. Not much has really changed. Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked, particularly when it comes to worship. So what is your reason for worship? Why are you here this morning? Children, why are you here this morning? Is it just because your parents made you come? You know, Scripture provides a variety of motivations that result in praise and worship of God. There's actually a lot of reasons we could give for why we are here this morning or why we should be here this morning. But are we meditating upon those things? What are those things? Well, Psalm 34 provides us with three of those reasons for coming together to worship and exalt the Lord. David, the author of this psalm, provides us these reasons, and they're found in responding to God's provision recognizing God's goodness, and resting in God's salvation. And we're going to look at those this morning. Because we want to make sure that when we gather together, it is not mindless worship. It is not mindless praise. But it is very thoughtful, intentional praise and worship. Whether it be through the study of his word or whether it be singing together. If you have your Bible open to Psalm 34, if you haven't gotten there yet, go ahead and turn there. And we're going to read this psalm in its entirety together. It's a bit bigger of a chunk this morning that we're going to cover. It begins, a psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. 
I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you this morning, we want to come with, as David says, a clean hands and a pure heart, a heart that is not here for selfish motives, a heart that in mind that is also not empty, that is purposeful in our worship, that is here for the right reasons. Fathers, we reflect upon this psalm and these words penned so many years ago, I pray that we would be quick to hear, to think and to recognize your provision, your goodness, and your salvation. They would impact not only our worship this morning, but how we live our lives each and every day. Pray for each of us in this room this morning. I pray for those in other churches across the state, this country, and this world that we would be true worshipers. We pray this in your name. Amen. You see the heading there at the beginning of Psalm 34. Many of the Psalms have these headings. Some are as short as a Psalm of David or a Psalm of Asaph. But these headings are part of the Psalm. They were not added by copyists or translators. And they can provide us some important information. For example, here we see that this Psalm was written during a uniquely troubling period of David's life. It's when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and departed. 1 Samuel 22 and 23 record how David at this time is fleeing from King Saul. He's fallen into disfavor through no fault or sin of his own, but because of Saul's wicked and selfish heart. 
Things got so bad that he fled to one of the five major Philistine cities, the city of Gath. Now, you do realize how bad things must have been for David to flee to Gath, right? First off, when Saul became king, Israel went into open war with just about every one of their neighbors. Whether it was an Ammonite, an Edomite, a Moabite, an Amalekite, any other, or the Philistines. The Philistines who really were dispersed throughout the middle of Israel. They had five major cities. Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gaza, and Gath. These were their chief and principal cities. You may recall this small little incident between the Philistines and the Israelites in the Valley of Elah. You may have heard of it, David and Goliath. It was in all the major newspapers. Shepherd boy slays the giant of Gath. Goliath was the champion of Gath. Now you don't go to the city of your enemy for refuge, unless you're desperate, especially not after you killed their favorite local hero. You have to be incredibly desperate to do this. David actually went so far as to pretend to be a madman. He would scribble incomprehensible messages on the city gate. He would drool so that it dripped down his beard. I won't illustrate that this morning. You're welcome. He looked crazy. He wanted to look crazy, and it worked. The king of Gath, named Achish, who had the title of Abimelech, wanted nothing to do with him. But since he had now drawn the attention of Achish, David thought it best to flee from there. So he did. And he went to the cave of Adullam, about 13 miles west of Bethlehem, right in the middle, in the center of the tribe of Judah. It was actually a labyrinth of caves that could house large numbers of persons and acted as a natural fortress. It was during this time that people began to flock in increasing numbers to David. It says that at least or approximately 400 men were joined to David, but it also appears that there were families who came. His own family came, his mother and his father and his brothers. Now, we don't know exactly how long David was there with these crowds of persons before he moved to the forest of Hereth. But there... In those caves, with no home he could go to, a fugitive in his own country, hated by the Philistines, this was not a high point of David's life. But it was here that David most likely penned Psalm 34. And he probably sang it to all those who flocked to him. Again, some 400 men along with wives and children, his parents, his brothers, That's the background and the context. Now, why did David write this psalm? We know when he did it. We know the context. But why did he write this psalm? Well, we aren't left in much suspense. The reason's in the first three verses. David is declaring his faith and his trust in God, in the Lord, regardless of circumstances. And he is calling upon all of those who surround him in that present time, And through the preservation of this text, all those sins to follow his example. And verse 3 ends with, let us exalt his name together. Now if this were many of today's praise and worship leaders, the psalm probably would have ended there. Let's praise together. No reason, no appeal to scripture, just let's worship together. 
But David is not your typical praise and worship leader. He's a prophet. He's a theologian. And he provides us with three deeply theological reasons why we should praise, why we should exalt the name of the Lord together. And they are, again, because of God's provision, because of his goodness, and because of his salvation. First of these is found in verses 4 through 7, responding in praise to God's provision. And what you will notice, and you probably already have noticed as we read the psalm, is that prayer is a central theme of this psalm. Whether it is described as seeking the Lord, whether it's crying to the Lord, whether it's looking to the Lord, whether it's taking refuge in the Lord, all of these are expressions of what we would call prayer. And verses 4 through 7 is a reminder that God answers those prayers. He hears the prayers of his servants, of those who love him. This is a far cry from the false gods of the ancient Near East. You likely remember later in Israel's history the showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah begins to mock them when Baal doesn't respond to their prayers, then to their cries, then to their shrieks, and then their bizarre antics, all trying to get Baal's attention. By comparison, When Elijah called on God, God answered instantly with fire from heaven, consuming the offering. Our God is different. He is a God who hears and answers prayers. And we'll get into this in a little bit more detail in verses 15 through 22. But notice that God answers the prayers of those who fear him. See, though God answers prayers, though he hears them, he is selective in the prayers he will listen to and answer. He closes his ears to those who do not fear him, who are also called the wicked. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And even the believer must take care when they pray that they are not sinning presumptuously, clinging to their sin, unwilling to repent of it while expecting God to answer their prayer. The psalmist writes, the believing psalmist writes, if I regard, consider, hold on to, cling to wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. In Psalm 66, 18. To modern, modern, modern terminology, there are a lot of prayers God sends to junk mail without even opening them. God hears everything, but he does not regard, he does not pay close attention or care for those prayers offered by the wicked or the believer in sin. Now, there may be times where the sovereign will of God happens to align with a sinful prayer or even an unbeliever in praying, but that correlation is not causation. The only confidence one can have that their prayer is heard and will be answered is if they fear the Lord and love the Lord and are walking according to his commandments. Just as John says in 1 John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And when we are walking according to God's commandments, we find that our priorities and our prayers look different, don't they? We've talked about this previously, but... Throughout the New Testament, 
Prayer is almost always found with thanksgiving. In fact, it's often when we're getting ready to pray, we're told to begin with thanksgiving. Why is that? We do this to remind ourselves that God answers prayer. That he is going to hear the prayers that are offered in righteousness. We're to consider when we pray, what has God answered? What has he answered in your life, big or small? If you struggle to praise the Lord, to worship him, then start by thanking him. Take the time to think about what has he provided you in this life? How has he cared for you in this life? Again, if you struggle, start with the small. You're here this morning, aren't you? You're clothed. You're breathing. You woke up. And then remember James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down to us from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow. A praying person is a thankful person. Are you a thankful person? When people look at you, do they think of you as a thankful person or a complainer? Are you a Debbie Downer? Or do you encourage others? Do they think of you as someone who is thankful and joyful? We probably all, some more than others, need to do a better job of being thankful. Because you see, both thankfulness and complaining are extremely contagious. They will spread and they will be caught by those around them. One heals, the other harms. Which one are you spreading? If you want to encourage people to worship, if you want to encourage people in coming together, we need to be thankful persons. Thankful, turning to the Lord, remembering that he answers prayer. David continues this theme of recognizing God's provision by turning from, turning toward, from God's provision toward a response because of God's goodness. This is another reason why we worship God is good. For those of you who like statistics, 27% of Psalm 34 is quoted in 1 Peter. But the very first Peter verse that Peter quotes is verse 8 here, Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And there's a reason for this. Some have even suggested with regard to this psalm that this verse, verse 8, captures the theme of the whole psalm. And I don't disagree. David, in his desire to call us to praise the Lord, to assemble together for worship, does not call us in the abstract. He wants us to taste and see that the Lord is good because this is going to motivate us to worship. There's an expectation here. Worship involves mindful experience. Not subjective feelings, but mindful, thoughtful experience that reaffirms the goodness of God in our lives. 
The term for taste, when used figuratively in figurative language like poetry or like you find in most of the Psalms, most often refers to the testing of something or seeking to discern and understand. For example, in Job 12.11, we read, does the ear does not the ear test words and the palate tastes food? Or in Job 34.3, for the ear tests words as the palate tastes food, tests it, determines its goodness. The term see is also figurative. It's a figurative reference to understanding and knowing. I was helping Nora with math yesterday, and several times I asked, do you see what I mean? I wasn't asking, do you see the numbers on the paper or on the whiteboard? I was asking, do you now understand the concept? Have you comprehended and locked into your memory the meaning? Tasting and seeing, then, is not passive experience. It is active experience. It is engaging with your experience. Experience is not bad, but we need to engage with it, to test it. It's not being carried away by the emotions of the experience, but rather it's considering our experiences, testing them in light of God's character and God's revelation, and acting upon those then in worship. There's a very important difference here between emotions caused by experience and affections caused or brought about in that experience. You see, there's nothing inherently wrong with emotions, but emotions can be misleading. So we need an objective means, a means outside of ourselves, for measuring the goodness of God. And that's what David is providing us here in this psalm, in these verses. Experience that is to be objectively evaluated. We need to create a distinction, as Jonathan Edwards did, between emotions and affections when he was considering the Great Awakening in the early and mid-1700s. To affect means to act upon or to produce a change. And so affection, then is a directing of the mind or the heart towards a particular object. It's a settled goodwill. It's a determined goodwill, a love for an object. Emotion, by comparison, refers to any agitation, upsetting of the mind or excitement of the sensibilities. And it's mostly passive. It's mostly an inward response, initially, to the experience of our senses, our touch, our taste, our sight, smell, and sound. And now what we do with those emotions, the outward expression that often comes from those emotions, that's another thing altogether, something we'll have to save for another time. But it's important that we recognize the difference. To overly generalize, affection is active, emotion is passive. Emotions are not wrong and may accompany Affection, but affection can act contrary to emotion. You can choose to act contrary to your emotions because it is a settled will, a determination based on objective truth, objective reality. To illustrate, children, do your parents love you? The answer is yes. Just in case my children need to know, I love you very much. 
your mom and dad have a settled will, a determination to love you. It was set on you, most instances, before you were even born. There might be times where you disobey, where you lie, where you might act selfishly, you might hurt your mom or your dad. And the emotion they feel at that moment may be frustration, it may be anger, it may be irritation, but the affection of love does not change. Mom or dad still deeply love you. My children know I don't always respond to the emotions rightly in those circumstances. When they hurt me with their words or their actions, and I come back and I ask for forgiveness because I love them deeply. Husbands and wives, when you married one another, you determined to love one another. You set your affection upon one another. You're going to offend. You are going to irritate one another at times, but you determined to love one another and not let your emotions of the moment rule your marriage. The same is true in the church. Church membership is important on many practical levels. But it is just as or even more important in reminding us that as members of one another, we set our affection on one another. We determine to love one another and care for one another. We are sinners. People are messy. We are going to hurt feelings. I'm going to hurt feelings. Not because I want to. Not because I try to. I'm trying to do the exact opposite. But we're going to stumble and we are going to blunder about at times. What we do in response will say a lot about whether we are ruled by affection or by emotion. Bring us closer back into our text. Affection then is not a bypassing of the mind or the intellect or the will, but it's mindfully engaging the senses and directing or redirecting our will and our desire toward careful consideration. Thinking carefully about our experience. And even though emotions and affections may at first be at odds with one another, emotions will often change to begin to align with one's affections. And so look again at David's words here in Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Objectively taste, that is consider thoughtfully, carefully this experience. And the see here is really causative. If you taste, then you will see. If you really take the time to consider, you will see, you will recognize, you will understand through your experience when you run it through the grid of what is true about God, the goodness of God. And what is the experience David tells us to thoughtfully consider? In these verses, it is how God responds to the prayer, to the cries, and the needs of those who fear him. Think about how God has acted in your life, O oh believer. David repeats, repeats the promise we see in the New Testament that those who seek the Lord will not be in want of any good thing. We have to define good though, don't we? Because when David wrote this, he didn't have a home. He was a fugitive. People hated him. He was really a man without a country. There was a lot that David probably wanted that we might consider good in this life. 
How could he then say that God does not withhold any good thing? Well, he could say this because David's definition of good and God's definition of good is very different than what most people think. Most people associate good with easy, with health, wealth, prosperity in this life. On the contrary, Scripture teaches that good is whatever makes me more like God. We are to be holy as God is holy, Leviticus 19.2, and then it's repeated in 1 Peter. That is the greatest good on this earth as we prepare for the life to come where we will ultimately experience unparalleled health, wealth, and prosperity, ironically enough. God does want that for us, just not yet, not in this world. But instead, in the life to come, this life is to prepare us for the life to come. So what is the good thing we should be asking for? What is the good thing we should be praying for? What is the good thing or things that we should expect from God? Whatever will conform us to the image of Christ. What will help us become more sanctified, more holy, more set apart for him, more worshipful? And in the grace of God in this life, there are often seasons of plenty, even relative ease and prosperity. But understand, those are refreshment stations in the marathon of life. That is not the normal course. And children, David has something here specifically for you. You see what he says? Children, come and listen to me. What does he want you to hear? He wants you to fear the Lord because that is the beginning of wisdom. He wants you to live long on this earth and to be spared much of the pain that this world brings. Not all of it, because it's expected to have some pain in this life, but you can have less. Talk to your parents. They will tell you, you can have less. How? Well, a very practical way. It's keeping your tongue from evil, your lip from speaking lies. Why would, why would David give this as the overarching description of what it is to love God, to fear God, to keep his commandments, to, as Ephesians 6, 1 say, says, prolong your days upon the land the Lord your God has given you, quoting all the way back to Deuteronomy? Why does he use your lips? Well, James gives us that answer, doesn't he? If a man is able to control his tongue, he is what? Able to control every aspect of his life. He likewise tells you to flee evil. When someone encourages you to disobey your parents, to do something wrong, something that would dishonor the Lord that you know is not right, run from it. And then he says, seek peace. Well, where do you seek peace? Well, you can start with your brothers and sisters. 
but then your friends and others. To obey God is to fear Him. And for the rest of us, there's really a lot there for us to apply, is there not? Whenever Jesus, the apostles, David in this case, or God speaks to children, He's really speaking to us just as much. He knows we're within earshot. And he wants you to fear the Lord because then you can experience his goodness. And then you have motivation for worship. At this point, you can probably recognize that we could spend several weeks in this psalm. Let's keep moving to the third reason David gives for why we come together to worship. A third reason he gives is that it's a response to God's salvation. God is a God who saves. It is a mark of his character. Verse 15 begins, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Now I've used this before, but it bears repeating. Persons in the ancient Near East did not drive around with chariots that have bumper stickers on them saying, Smile, Baal loves you. Or, Ashtaroth is smiling on you. In the ancient world, the last thing you wanted was a God's attention. Because when you had their attention, it usually meant ruin upon your life. By comparison, what does David say? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And it's an encouragement. And his ears are open to their cry, to their prayers. With the Lord, it is the exact opposite of all the other gods. For those who love him and fear him. We see in verse 18 that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is the same promise that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty, who come to me crying out, in neediness, expressing that neediness. This is where salvation begins. This is where righteousness begins. By recognizing our spiritual poverty. By crying out to the Lord who hears and cares and promises to rescue. But again, we need to define a term here. What does rescue mean? I want to answer this from verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20 are quoted by John in his gospel in John 19, 33 through 36. They're referred to as Jesus hangs on the cross. The soldiers are approaching because it's nearing evening and they can't let them hang over Passover and the Sabbath. So they go up to break the criminal's legs so they'll suffocate before the day sets. They break the first criminal's legs. They come to Christ and they realize he's already dead. So they don't break his legs. They pierce his side. And John quotes this here as saying it was fulfilled 
by Christ, or this was done to fulfill what was written, that not a bone would be broken. Fulfillment language, by the way, is something that can be confusing at times. Without going into a long discussion, one of the best ways to think about the term fulfilled is the greatest example or the climactic event of something that was promised or an illustration that was given. In other words, this may be true for many others, but we see its best representation in Christ. But let me ask you this. If this was fulfilled in Christ, if God rescues the righteous, by the way, you notice it changed to the singular there? Gone from the plural to the singular. If he rescues the righteous, each and every one, it's the individual focus here. This is not just generalizing. Each one of us can lean in to this promise. If he rescues each of the righteous, then was Jesus spared suffering and death on the cross? No. So this rescuing doesn't necessarily mean deliverance from all pain and difficulty on this earth. It's important. It's important to understand that. This rescuing then must mean something else. And what it means is it's a promise to carry you through the pain and difficulty. Sometimes even death. So that you may enjoy the promise of your future home. To hold you secure. That you may in the life to come experience what real health, wealth, and prosperity looks like. It's a promise to preserve your soul. To keep it untouched. To protect it from condemnation. If you were here this morning and you have never cried out to the Lord in poverty of spirit, recognizing your sinfulness, the guilt of sin that you have before a holy God, then you have no promise of rescuing from hell and from eternal torment and the death that comes. And so the plea with you this morning is to cry out to the God you have offended who has promised to bend his ear, to draw near as we read this morning. It's called you to come, all who are weary and heavy laden. If you are heavy laden, burdened with your sin this morning, come to the cross and cry out to God. There is not one he will turn away who cries out for forgiveness of sin. This is the hope of all who claim to be followers of God and Jesus Christ. All who may be counted among those who are holy, the holy ones, the saints. And it's the hope that we will be carried through whatever difficulty we find in this life. Again, that shift from plural to singular in verse 19 is so important because it gets very personal. Each and every one of you who is a Christian, who loves the Lord, you will be delivered if you keep your trust in the Lord. If you make him your refuge, when you do that, you will find that you can endure all things. It's for this reason that James can write regarding the painful struggles of this life in James 1, consider it all joy, 
my brethren, my brothers, my sisters. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith develops and produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And it goes on to say, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and the promise is it will be given. But you must ask in faith, not doubting, because the one who doubts, James says, is like a, 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 a wave of the sea. It's that surf that gets driven and tossed by the wind. This emphasis on salvation and our salvation, each, and indiv- each one of our salvation, is what allows us to worship. And we're reminded that God is a God who saves with each trial we go through in this life because he carries us through with the promise of the life to come. And so when you struggle to worship or when you come to worship, be mindful Be thoughtful. Be specific about why you came and why you came and why you come to praise and exalt the Lord. There are other reasons in Scripture, other good reasons. But here in Psalm 34, David gives us three wonderful reasons, big picture reasons for praising and worshiping the Lord together. And if you will take the time Saturday night, Sunday morning before you arrive at church to stop and consider these things, to begin by giving thanks to the Lord for what he's done in your life, by considering his goodness and his dealings with you and your experiences and mindfully engage in them. If you will reflect upon your salvation, it will allow you to worship rightly the God who has saved you. We want to respond to God's provision. We want to recognize God's goodness and we want to rest in his salvation. Let's pray. Father, as we close this morning, a simple thank you may be enough. Thank you for Christ and the cross, the hope of salvation for all generations. Thank you for the hope that you have given to each of those who has called on your name. Thank you for the hope that is held forth to all who will and would call upon your name. Would we walk before you in integrity so that we can have confidence that you hear our prayers? Would we be quick to be thankful and respond in thankfulness? May we consider and contemplate with joyfulness, our experiences in this life and your goodness to us. May we delight in your salvation and in your promise to rescue us, to uphold us, and to take us by the hand through the storms of this life. In your name, amen.